No, I say I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. The only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking mentality giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country. Produce players and grow and play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony. I have to be honest with you. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And fighting is there! Robbie Brady brings us all to the feet. As we pull the curtain down on another season, one that many will be quick to forget under an avalanche of bad football and piped in crowd noise that left us feeling just as empty as the stadiums on our screens. We have one game to go until a much needed breather ahead of Euro 2020 later in June so let's all look forward to a Champions League final between uh, let me check, oh Jesus Chelsea versus Man City. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this week's Three at the Back podcast I'm joined as always by Phil Green and Enda Higgins. How are you lads? Evening. Good evening lads. A joke, of course, um, I suppose, in a battle between the Gulf and Russian-funded English football heavyweights, we're very much looking forward to see if City can finally get over their European hump or if Thomas Tuchel can miraculously guide Chelsea to silverware, egged on by the ghost of Frank Lampard. To preview the final, we'll be joined by Sean O'Connor of LOI Fan TV and Joe Deegan from the Main Road Ramble podcast a little later on for some Irish uh, fan perspective um, on the Champions League final for Chelsea and Manchester City. Um, but before all that, lads, I suppose, unfortunately for Enda, we have to kick off with um, last night's European final, I mm-hmm. suppose. <laughs> Villarreal beating United on penalties after a one-all draw after extra time. To be honest, I kind of, I actually kind of enjoyed the game overall. Um, I don't know, my some sort of glutton for punishment, but I don't know, I just, I, whether it was the, the involvement of fans or, what, but I just kind of thought overall it kind of had a um, a big match feel, I suppose, and kind of had all the ingredients um, of a final, I suppose, with Villarreal. Kind of, they, they brought a very clear game plan, and it was kind of up to United to see what they could do to break it down. And there was kind of a lot of intrigue, I suppose, surrounding that. But um, but then I'm sure you had a, a very different feeling on it all. Um, and I think we, we, we'll we'll get to David again now shortly. But uh, I suppose in terms of the first. Was it 120 minutes? How how would you have summed up United's performance? Yeah, I, it's a great way to end a slog of a season by having another yeah. 120 minutes and then 22 <laughs> penalties. You know, it just kind of summed up the last kind Never of ending. you know just the last 10 months of pure. God, I don't even know what you call it. I think uh, I think I reached my limit a few weeks ago with the uh, Atletico Barcelona nil nil. Whatever weekend that was, I was like, I I need a break here, and somehow it just kept on going and going. And last night, at eleven or half eleven, finally it was over. Um, but uh, you know, I think what worried me about Villarreal is you know they're a street smart team, obviously. Uh, you know, a lot of experience uh, in their spine with uh, Pareco. Um, who joined in the summer, uh, Gerard Moreno, who's had, you know, the best season of his career uh, and a lot of experience across the board uh, and Unai Emery uh, in the Europa League. It really is his bag, you know, and they're unbeaten all season 
in Europe. So I felt that, you know, I certainly didn't have the confidence that the BT Sport lads had pre-match. Uh, I, I was actually quite happy with the United selection overall, um, but I just felt that Villarreal, they narrowed things down in midfield, gave Wambazaka a lot of time on the ball um, to kind of shut down United, which is something that a lot of teams do when they do have success against United. Um, I think Sevilla did something similar last year as well, so it felt very similar to that match. Um, didn't really give Fernandez and Pogba too much time on the ball. Rashford was struggled all night, as he usually does when he looks uh, unfit. Um, and they just couldn't get Greenwood on the ball enough, who's probably United's biggest threat. But I think overall, United's form in the last few weeks, they've kind of played themselves out of form. You know, Shaw, Fernandez, Pogba haven't quite had the same impact that they did when we went on that good run just before the Liverpool game was cancelled. So you can't just switch it on like a tap, unfortunately. And I felt we just struggled a bit too much throughout the night. Um, and then some bizarre decision-making at the end then, especially Fernandez deciding to go second in the shootout. Um, and we'll get on to him in a bit, I suppose. But De Gea not really following his notes that he was given uh, for the penalties kind of sums up his Peter Shilton-esque uh, career when it comes to penalties and penalty shootouts in general. I don't think he's ever won one in his career. Um, and, you know, he doesn't really have the confidence that, you know, was required at the moment. So I was actually surprised he started the match just in case there was a chance that, you know, United gave away a penalty or it did go to penalty shootouts. But um, a disappointing end to the season. I don't think it defines United's season per se. It would have been nice, obviously, for Solskjaer to win a trophy and, you know, mm. the usual people come crawling out of the woodwork um, after months of, I don't know, bigging up their Roma accounts or something. I don't know. But um, <laughs> <laughs> uh it was it was a disappointing night. I just felt Villarreal were smarter in their tactics, their game plan, um, and in the penalty shootout as well. So uh, I think they deserved it overall. Uh, yeah, like I suppose not having seen loads and loads of Villarreal other than in the Europa League, I was it was hard to know. Like Ender was saying, there was really kind of negative press for them. It was very much pitched as a thing that like. There was nearly no way United were going to manage to lose to this rabble who finished seventh in in La Liga, and um, but like you look at the manager that they have and the, he's a competition specialist and uh, like like Ender was saying, Moreno had such a good season for them, and um, it did feel a small bit like a hiding to nothing for United because if they win, everyone had had like belittled Villarreal to the point where it was expected and then it turns out that they didn't and there's like Ender said, people kind of coming out of the woodwork and. Uh, this has been used as a stick to to beat all all kind of comers to do with United. Um, the game itself, I was really surprised when United got the goal that they didn't go at them. I thought it was like not least because we've seen it all season from United that kind of pattern, especially away from home, go behind, rally, come back, win three one or so. But just how relatively early in the second half the goal came, um, it, I just thought they were going to go for it. But for whatever reason, and then you kind of alluded to it. Villarreal used their substitute bench and Manchester United didn't. And so when you expected Villarreal to start getting tired because they'd put in such a defensive shift, Emery actually was proactive and made changes. And Solskjaer just kind of ground that 11 into... Was it, like, was it extra time before he actually made his first yeah. change? Yeah, was, yeah. Like, I mean, that's bananas. Um, and like considering you're allowed extra changes in the European competitions than you are... In England, in the Premier League, and you're allowed an extra one when you go to, to extra time. And I know, he, like, he mightn't have great trust in the kind of fourth or fifth options on the bench, but surely you, you spring one of them, one of your first couple of choices a little earlier. And um, so, like, 
I, I was surprised that that the wave didn't come from United, and then I was kind of surprised at at Solskjaer's um, decision making in game, and that's not even to kind of touch on his end. I said the kind of weird decisions around the penalties, yeah. letting them go second, Fernandez go, sorry, letting them go first. I mean, Fernandez going second. Um, I don't know if you saw. Uh, there was an interesting tra- interesting thread on Twitter today yeah. from a, a guy. Yeah, it was excellent. Yeah, yeah. Can't what's his name? Uh, John Harrison, um, an astronomy PhD candidate in Cambridge or something. But um, it was I thought it was a really interesting analysis of why De Gea struggles at penalties and basically he kind of takes a takes a negative mm. step as this guy calls it, where he kind of sets himself to dive in one direction by moving a little bit in the other direction, and that just takes like a little bit of his reach off him. Uh, and it kind of like rang true with a few of the penalties last night. Uh, actually, for a shootout that went that long, there wasn't actually that many near misses. There was obviously one from Villarreal, two from United, but there was actually a lot of really good penalties. And I kept expecting bad penalties. I was like, yeah. Fred, definitely missing. Dan James, million percent missing. But no, they put together some pretty good penalties. So um, I thought the thread was interesting because it, it kind of rang a bit true. But um, for 22 penalties, they were there was 21 or maybe, sorry, maybe 18 good ones. Yeah. I suppose, back to your point on, on, on the substitutes for a second, and Enda, you'll obviously be a lot more familiar with um, Solskjaer's decision-making when it comes to the use of his substitutes, but, I mean, I was pretty baffled that it took to the 100 minutes before we saw the first change, um, and I think it was Fred at the time, um, uh, for Greenwood and Greenwood I mean he was looking a little bit leggy but he did seem fairly threatening he certainly seemed more threatening to me than than Rashford say had throughout the uh, the end of uh, the second half and the, and the beginning of the the extra time period but even like I was thinking throughout the game that you know as well set up as Villarreal are they seemed a little bit slow like they seemed you know that if someone with a little bit of pace could finally nick behind them. There could be a chance created. So I was kind of surprised Diallo wasn't thrown on. Um, I mean, obviously, Tellez and, and Matt were brought on for their um, their penalty expertise, and, and, and it obviously worked in the end. But, I mean, even Don, Donny van de Beek could have, could have added a little bit of legs to midfield and, and, and something different, I suppose. But I suppose the reaction from all of this and from everything I've read so far is that Solskjaer... His first of all, his decision making in terms of use of his substitutes might be a little bit off, but also he just he doesn't trust a lot of these guys um, when it comes to the crunch. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of sums up where Solskjaer is at at the moment. The things he was doing badly, kind of eighteen months or two years ago, are, are the still the, the issues kind of uh, stopping him progressing as a manager further. Um, and the things that he's done well since the start are still the things that he's able to do well. Um, so if he can bridge that gap next season, but yet I'm pretty sure I was here this time last season saying the same thing as well about his in-game management. Um, for somebody who <laughs> was seen as a super sub his whole whole career, it's actually kind of bizarre. Yeah. And I actually think it co- goes back to, um, you know, when Cardiff were relegated in the championship, I think he's in his first nine or 10 games, he started different formations and, and lineups in every game and was absolutely panned for it by the fans before getting sacked. And he, he did have that kind of tinkerman reputation almost at the club by the end. And I think he's gone too far the other way now where he just tries to basically run his kind of seven or eight favourites into the ground. And um, it definitely was a night to stretch the game, especially when Villarreal went 4-5-1 with Cochrane coming on in midfield. It was kind of obvious that they were going to slow the game down. Um 
and and really really pack the midfield and as I say I would have taken Rashford off at that point moved Greenwood yeah. to the right and then you know put on Diallo um now obviously he hasn't played much this season but you know for the sake of 20 minutes um in a tight game in a, in a final I mean he when Sosha was forced to use him against Milan you know it kind of kept United in the competition at that point um and he played well against Wolves at the weekend he played okay against Leicester when he started um but again he just doesn't seem to have that bravery or trust uh, at the moment Van de Beek as well in in a tight kind of game where United have 67 68% possession that certainly suits his type of game style as well but um you know Sosha wasn't really going to take off Pogba and Fernandez at that point of the game. I know he took Pogba off right before the penalties, but that was effectively when he had accepted that the game was done at that point. So uh, a little lack of bravery, I felt. Um, and it was probably summed up in his decision-making as well by not picking Henderson. I think that was a big decision overall. Um, and it would have been the braver call. Um, so, yeah, I just don't think he has full trust yet uh, in some of those uh, squad players. Um, and that's something that will need to be addressed next season because, you know, this again, it's the second season in a row where we've seen Fernandez, Rashford, Wambasaka, Shaw play, what, 50 odd games. Um, and, you know, if you can't rotate consistently with a, a strong squad, which United have now, um, it, these things are going to keep happening and, and the team will hit a wall like they did last season as well. Um, and then it's tough to bounce back and, and find form again when that does happen. Um, as I said, if the game was played five, six weeks ago when United looked much sharper, um, everybody was in better form, I think we would have been okay. But the fact that we, you know, the, since the, the cancel game and the schedule was just talked about so much and that seemed to get into Solskjaer's and the players' heads a lot. And I don't think the team never seemed to recover any kind of fluency in their play since then. Saturday, ironically, with all the changes, was probably our most comprehensive performance uh, in a few weeks. Uh, and most of those guys weren't obviously uh, part of it yesterday. Um, so, yeah, certainly something he'll have to work on. But it's probably my most concerning point of Solskjaer overall is his in-game management and his lack of using the bench. Um, there are many matches where you where it's just obvious that changes need to be made. You know, Fred against PSG before he got sent off was another obvious one, things like that. Yeah. Um, uh, so you'd hope he'll learn it at this point, but I, I was hoping last summer would have been the kind of light bulb moment where he realized that he can't just run all these players into the ground. I mean, Rashford at 23, I mean, if, if it keeps going this way, I can't see him getting to 30. Uh, he released a statement today saying, you know, he struggled with injuries this season. That's contributed to his poor form, etc. And now he's going off to the Euros with England. So, uh, like, when does it end for him, you know? Um, so, uh, Solskjaer sort of has a, duty to himself and the players really to kind of figure out how to just rotate a bit more while keeping them fresh so that when these big games do come along we don't hit the wall like we did yesterday because I mean almost 70% possession in, in 120 minutes and only I think two shots on target kind of told it to whole, the whole story we just didn't have the energy really to to stretch Villarreal um, at all in the game apart from maybe Greenwood a few times um, and Solskjaer did have the options to change it and didn't yeah, even on Rashford, I mean, going down with cramp towards the end of, of extra time, your heart kind of went out to him a little bit. He's just been absolutely ran into the ground and he looked completely gassed. Um, uh, and it's been so evident over the last kind of months of the season. And just, I mean, imagine he's going to be a starter for England as well. And um, unless Southgate kind of plans to kind of hold him back for, for a couple of the games, he, he he's not getting any rest whatsoever no. going into next season. 
Um, just on the penalties quickly, and I think there was a couple of uh, discussions on Twitter last night as to you know what kind of constitutes a great penalty. Um, and I mean, Coughlin buried his. I thought it was very good. The goalie as well for Villarreal. Absolutely, um, Rudy, He had a pretty brilliant penalty. Um, but I am. Um, I mean, I I wasn't aware of De Gea's horrendous record against penalties, but. Mm. The whole way throughout the shootout, I mean, he just looks so so feeble in goals. And obviously, the the trade that Phil mentioned kind of yeah. brought light to that. That he kind of he gives the the penalty taker a little bit of an advantage by kind of basically making that side of the goals bigger, essentially by taking that step. But he just looks so meek, and like he got his hand to one penalty that kind of went down the middle, but. He was. He was just. He, he kind of skates away to the to the other side of the goals, and the ball just rolls in. I it's, it's, I, was, I couldn't believe how how poor he looked in in, in up against him. Like he didn't look convincing at all. Yeah, there's never any conviction really. I, like it's been like that really throughout his entire United career. Um, a, a lot of fans I know have mentioned it several times. So uh, I mean, it, the thread actually was the first time I saw it. It was a, a technical issue. Um, you know, even when he dives the right way, he still never looks anywhere near the ball. Um, and ironically, in the same thread, or, or maybe it was a different thread, they pointed out that Henderson actually does the opposite uh, to what De Gea does, which is when he takes that step, he goes the direction that he's trying to, if you get me, he's not moving against his own body. Uh, and that means he's basically able to cover the side he picks, uh, even as far as the post. Um, and I think it, they used uh, a penalty, was it Man City last year as an example, where it would have gone in the right bottom corner. Very similar, actually, to the penalty Alcacer took last night, where De Gea probably should have got it, yeah. probably should have saved it. Mm. Um, so the fact that it is a technical issue, uh, as well as a mental one, he just looks like somebody who doesn't think he's going to save a penalty. It's like almost when a defender's just standing there in a keeper's jersey after being, you know, put in, put in goals. Um, so he's never really, for such a good shot stopper, he's never really had that conviction. And if you look at probably the best saves in his United career, you know, 95% of them are all kind of spur of the moment, uh, you know, reactive. It they're not like one on ones where he has time to think or time to spook a striker out. It was always he's always been a very kind of instinctive uh, shot stopper. Um, and and the fact that that's kind of letting him down now at the moment as well. His other weaknesses are are, are being exposed more and more. Um, even to the point where you think like a free from that far out should he have commanded the eighteen yard box a lot better than he should have, considering how far the ball travels. We know Henderson likes to come for for frees like that. So just just other things, but like overall, I mean, the game wasn't on De Gea, but the fact that, um, yeah. you know, when it did get the penalties, it, it did highlight, you know, a deficiency in his game. Um, and and again, I mentioned earlier, they had Moy Gomez. I, I don't know, did he write down his notes or did somebody hand him notes? But they had, he was sixth, I think, for Villarreal. Um, and they, they basically told De Gea to go, he'll go down the centre and De Gea dives to his left for some reason. My Gomez goes down the centre and you're just thinking, you know, just lack of thought. <laughs> and, and and that really sums up United, really. It's that kind of lack of IQ, street smart. You know, you look at the Everton game, for example, 3-2 three, three, up after four and a half minutes of four minutes of injury time. De Gea had the ball in his hands and yet we still managed to to draw the game 3-3, you know, giving away these frees that we do in the last minute of games that we should be winning comfortably. We just never really have that kind of street smart throughout the squad. Uh, and last night, again, just seemed to sum it up, just kind of... Yeah. And that's where Villarreal really were in their element. You know, that's them all over. Um, you know, I wouldn't take 
too much notice of Paul's goals and, you know, they're seventh in La Liga. They've been in very good form the last few weeks, even after making a few changes at the weekend. They played very well at Real Madrid. Uh, very experienced team um, and have kind of the perfect kind of squad for a European campaign like the Europa League. Um, so, you know, um, but yeah, I did, did feel sorry for De Gea in the end, especially if that's going to be his last game. But it did just kind of sum up where he's at at the moment and I don't think he's in a great place. Yeah, and I suppose on street smarts, I, I don't know if you saw um, uh, a tweet from um, Archie Rind. Tut, he uh, he covers Bundesliga, but he was at the game uh, behind the dugout. Um, and at one point, I think it was Lee Grant shouted at um, at Rashford basically to take uh, one fight on that he was looking leggy. Mm. And um, uh, Unai Emery took fight off straight away as soon as, uh, <laughs> yeah. as he saw that. So, I mean, it's just the, it's the little things like yeah. that, isn't it? That kind of... I suppose Emery has been there, done that. Was it four Europa League wins now? I mean, it's incredible. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, for a fellow who has the CV that he has, like a mispronunciation of a word in front of the English press is probably yeah. giving him a reputation that he mm. really doesn't deserve. I mean, it wasn't a success at Arsenal. There's no point in dressing it up any other way, but um, he got painted as some sort of clown because in... At best, his second language, I don't know how he is with Portuguese and other languages like that, but at best, his second language, he mispronounced a word and he kind of used it over and over again. It was like such a stupid jingoistic stick to beat him with. Uh, when you look at, at what he's achieved in nearly everywhere else he's been, um, and certainly, as he did with Sevilla and now with Villarreal, not the most fashionable teams uh, to be achieving things with, um, but he knows how to get things done in this competition. Um, like like Enda said, like they had a, they have a certain way of playing, and they they rounded off into really good form at the right sort of time. Uh, and like you were pointing out, Kev, <laughs> I mean, li- listening to what Lee Grant is shouting mightn't be the most uh, might be the best example of t- tactical acuity, but it's still like an, a yeah. good appreciation of yeah. game state. I mean, like if everyone had that much cop on it, it'd be good. And like even when um, he made the substitution of backup for Coquelin and. You know, the Villarreal fans weren't mad about that in the stand. There was a cutaway to the camera or a cutaway camera to the crowd. They weren't delighted with it because one of their bigger goal threats being replaced by a defensive midfielder. But it was what they needed at that time because they were starting to flag. United were building up ahead of pressure. Um, like, I, I, I'm, I'm happy for him because of, like, and to do it to an English team. And I'm sorry, I had to be United then. Yeah, but yeah. I don't think he would have gotten the credit if he if Villarreal bet Shakhtar or somebody in the Europa League final, um, this hopefully will be a bit of a rehabilitation for his reputation that got the pillared at Arsenal at a time when they weren't at their best and because he couldn't pronounce a word more than what he did in the pitch. So I'm, I'm happy for him, for a fellow who's achieved an awful lot um, to have gotten an unfair reputation. Uh, it, was a, it was a nice night of redemption for him. In terms of um, news around Europe, I suppose... Um something we've kind of covered over the past couple of weeks towards the end of the season. And um, the manager, Mario Goround, is, is is going into hyperdrive really this week. Um, and we, we kind of, we, we played on the idea that, you know, um, especially with Simon last week, the, that, you know, would you take Pochettino back to Spurs? And it was kind of like a pipe dream at that point. But all of a sudden it seems very serious and very likely to happen. Um, or the fact that he'll at least leave PSG. And I think... Um, Leonardo, the the sporting director, there cutting ties with a yet another um, high profile manager, which is which is another debate. But 
Um, I mean, Real Madrid are looking for a manager. Juventus are looking for a manager. Inter are looking for a manager. Um, and Spurs, obviously. But um, Pochettino back to Spurs, it, it, it's so mad um, and kind of so, I suppose, unlikely six months ago that it probably makes sense for all parties for a, for a little bit of a, a reunion there between Levy and and Poch and for Levy to kind of grovel a little bit and, and kind of promise some funds to, to get Spurs back on track. Yeah, but I mean, what a if Poch does go back, I mean, what a catastrophic decision by Levy to have gotten rid of him because you sacked him, paid him off, hired Jose, sacked him, paid him off, and all you did was set your team back and waste whatever it is, was it 12, 18 months of Harry Kane and Son's prime uh, career years. Um, and and watch the team kind of disintegrate from Champions League finalists and top four regulars to Europa Conference League um, participants. I mean, like it, Levy, like I'm not sure how answerable he is to those above him, but I mean, he's not far off the kind of uh, Ed Woodward mold at the minute in terms of like sacking the club's most successful manager since Bill Nicholson in 1961 um, and bringing him back 18 months later having a brand new stadium that has a millstone of debt around the club's neck and having a global pandemic mean you can't put anyone in it, you can't have American football in it, you can't have concerts in it. Uh, he, he's in a sticky situation here. And um, like, like if I'm Poch, and I'm not sure, again, like I can't imagine PSG is exactly the easiest place in the world to manage, and his style particularly might be a little difficult to, to implement with, you know, eight eight outfield players considering the two up top aren't going to do necessarily what he wants to do. But it's a dicey move, I think, for Potts to go back. Like he left Spurs with his reputation sky high, um, and he had them kind of humming at a maximum. I think it's not an easy place to go back to now, and with a squad not that different to what he left, or what yeah, what he left. But everyone's just a little bit older and a little bit less happy. So, um, if I'm Potts, maybe I'm having a real think about this because I don't know. I think there's a, de- a decent bit of work to be done with Spurs. I don't think it's a matter of a new coat of paint straight away. Um, but like, if, if if I'm a Spurs fan, I'm jumping up and down uh, because obviously, like everything that he achieved for them, it, it was great. But um, I don't know how happy the reunion would be in the longer term. I'm, I'm not sure if it's the widest move for for Maurizio. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird one, really, considering you know Spurs they got themselves into such a good position in terms of consistently. Well, I want to say challenging for the Premier League, but being up there season after season, reaching cup finals, um, you know, their finances were in good shape. The stadium was coming along well. Um, and now they've set themselves back pretty much two years of their time, the players' time. Um, and the weird thing is, it seems to be Pochettino really pushing to leave PSG to actually go back there, uh, mm. which I don't fully understand um, because, you know, as we've seen many times, um, you know, I do feel his time at Spurs was done and he got the most that he could out of that squad, a bit like Jardam at Monaco and he ended up going back and it didn't end well for him. Um, I feel that similar thing for Pochettino. I don't think that PSG was was ever a good fit for him in terms of the profile of squad and the type of um, the type of game they want to play. Um, and I don't think the, the Real Madrid squad, which he was linked with today as well, is a good fit for him at the moment. But, you know, uh, I think if he'd, he'd taken his time, he would have gotten, you know, plenty of good offers. Um, the, the irony of the managerial go-around really is uh, if Mourinho hadn't taken the Roma job, I imagine he would have been approached <laughs> for some of these bigger <laughs> jobs that he feels 
that he still feels he should be getting, you know. So uh, I'm sure the Mourinho household isn't a great place to be. It probably never is anyway. Um, <laughs> but uh, um, just just on some of the, the clubs you mentioned there at the start, it does look like Allegri is going back to Juve and Simone Inzaghi is going to Inter. But I think mm-hmm. the bigger story at Inter is how they raise this kind of 80 to 100 million that they, they seem desperate to, to make yeah. this summer. So, I mean, if they do sell Hakimi and, and a few of the others who are... You know, very important in their in their Syria win. Um, they really could set themselves back. So you know, Italy is getting itself into a, a bit of a mess at the moment, really, in terms of their finances. Juventus are in a similar situation. I think they like Ronaldo's thirty-one million euro a year wages off their books now at this stage as well. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how how all that goes. But yeah, I, I'm I'm surprised Poch is pushing so hard to go back to Spurs, but perhaps. The experience at PSG just makes him realize and maybe appreciate more the the work he did at Spurs and players who who responded more to, you know, his methods and and that level of intensity that he wants uh, from a team because he certainly hasn't gotten that out of PSG. Yeah, you mentioned Syria; they're a, a little bit of a mess at the moment. Um, um, I mean, Conte couldn't uh, at first. It kind of took me by surprise. I know it was kind of. Uh, there was an undercurrent of rumor that 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 he did want out, and um, I was listening to um, Nikki Bandini earlier on, and she was just kind of explaining that uh, you know that the Chinese ownership over Inter kind of have to abide by Chinese restrictions as well in terms of foreign investment, and there's a kind of a lot of uh, uh, financial strings there that they have to cut back, uh, you know, sell some players, cut back some wages, um, and Conte obviously didn't uh, didn't want to stand by that, and I think that's why. Um, and you kind of have to admire his stubbornness um, when it comes to you know standing by his principles like that. But I don't think he'd uh, he'd get on with Daniel Levy too too kind of. Either, so, um, I can't I can't see him being in the run for for the Spurs job. Um, but Allegri back to Juventus. It looks like um, Perlo only lasting a year there, um, and elsewhere then Gattuso is leaving Napoli, and he's already been hired by Fiorentina. Um, and the rumor then is that Luciano Spalletti is going to be the new Napoli boss. Um, so a fair mm. bit of uh, of a merry-go-round in um, in Syria. Um, I, I don't know where's next for Conte. Maybe a year out and, and wait for another big club to come knocking, or, or I don't know. Do PSG take a punt on him as like? He won the league with uh, with half an, an ex United team. Could he just bring the lads back <laughs> and, uh, and, and take take over the wheel from Ali? I don't know. Uh yeah, if 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 he doesn't get on with uh, senior members <laughs> of a football club, I'm not sure. Uh, Ed Woodward, one of only spend the last six months of his United career, uh, having Conte shout down the phone at him, wanting to sign, you know, Collar off and Young and Darmian and you know whoever, whatever other 35 year old fullback is knocking around. Um, but he is an interesting case study, I suppose, for the modern day manager Conte in terms of if you go in and you give him everything he wants he'll probably guarantee you a title but then once he leaves he's leaving a squad that (laughs) not many people will be really happy to take over Uh, Inzaghi is an interesting choice obviously because he's been so successful at Lazio um, and they play a 3-5-2 formation that's worked very well for the last few years so it's kind of probably the closest to a Conte they get in terms of tactics um but he's nowhere near the character and kind of man manager that that Conte is. Um, so, uh, you know, Madrid that would potentially be the most likely for me, considering you know Perez would be the type of manager to spend, maybe not this summer, um, but in six twelve months time when things are back to norm, norm full normality. Um, 
he would be the type of uh, owner to, to back Conte and give him kind of some random signings that he demands to keep him happy and then deliver some titles and, and leave again in 18 to 24 months after dropping a grenade. So uh, that would be potentially a, a, a likely destination, in my opinion. Um, although I do think the Spurs squad would suit his tactics and mentality very well and, you know, would potentially it would be really interesting to see what they would do with a manager like that in terms of considering the players that they have because I just think Mourinho was too too negative in terms of how he dealt with them and Pochettino you know stretched himself to his limits to get what um he could out of them but I think Conte is a, is a level above that again um so that would have been an interesting one but but I can't see him coming back to England but it will be an interesting one to see where he goes but he'll probably take a break for a while he's a very intense character anyways he he pretty much wanted out last summer they convinced him to stay gave him the signings that he wanted he he won he won Syria um so it's job done for him really um and his reputation as always seems to be intact while the club will probably suffer um and just on the owners of Inter I mean the Suning group they pretty much pulled the plug on their own local uh, Chinese club that they were funding even after they won the league last year. Um, now, the finances aren't the issue. They're absolutely loaded, but they just seem to have lost any sort of interest in football and, and probably want to move on to, to something different. So not too surprising that they're not really going to get out the checkbook to keep Conte happy in a in a COVID-affected market. I think he wanted mm. a, a lot of new players this summer and he now he's been told, you know, they have to recap recoup 80 million in sales which you know probably involves selling two of the two or three of their best performers from last season so not too surprising that he didn't really entertain that idea and then obviously another high profile manager um available and i mean in terms of zidane and i was reading um Dermot Corrigan had a tweet up earlier on he's left madrid three times now and each time he kind of left without um negotiating the last year of his contract so he's left behind um, kind of an estimated 42 million euros worth of, of uh, a salary um, in each time he left Real. Um, but three Champions League titles, two La Liga titles, um, two Club World Cup titles, but still doesn't seem to be the, the same clamour for Zidane as there would be a Pochettino or, a, or even a Conte. Um, do you see him ending up anywhere? It's really hard to know. I mean, like, he's literally only done a job at one club and he kind of leaves whenever he feels like it and comes back nearly whenever he feels like <laughs> it. Uh, so it's kind of bizarre. And not that his face doesn't fit, but it's just kind of hard to think where else he'd go. Like, I, I don't, rightly or wrongly, I don't know is he a man that gets stuck into a rebuild. Um, like, by dint of his CV and his profile uh, in the game, like, you're really kind of talking about, like, PSG, if Poch leaves, he could go there, but he's, yeah. he's 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 a Marseille boy. I don't know how attached he is to his hometown club, uh, and that would not be a popular decision with with the Marseille ultras. I don't I, I don't know like how deep that would go. Um, I don't know whether if Deschamps wins the Euros and maybe he rides off to the sunset, does Zidane try international management until he wants to manage Real again? <laughs> like I genuinely, I don't know. Um. Like, rightly or wrongly, he does kind of feel like the sort of manager that United might go for if they needed a manager. I'm not saying they do um, necessarily, but if they were in the market for one, rightly or wrongly, he kind of feels like the kind of person, maybe because it seems like the sort of per player they try and sign, I don't know, um, like some something shiny that Real Madrid had. Anyway, um, 
yeah, I, I just find him really hard to pinpoint just because he doesn't seem all that bothered about immersing himself in like like you see someone like Thomas Tuchel and you're like that lad's never going to be out of work yeah. like he'll get sacked and he'll take a job like he he took the Chelsea job you get the sense you'd have no problem with him pitching up at, at Spurs or Napoli or places like that whereas with Zidane you think if it's, you're not in the last four of the Champions League I can't see Zidane yeah. taking you on um, it seems like more of a hobby to Zidane than a kind of uh, a vocation. Exactly. It? Yeah. Exactly. And like I suppose we kind of have that image of him as well in our head of of the of the player. You know, walked away from the French national team, came back, left the game pretty early as a player, um, and he just kind of seems to breeze in and breeze out, and like nearly as much as Conte is guaranteeing teams trophies, Zidane turns out guarantees Madrid trophies. Um, so I, I don't know if if he doesn't go to PSG, I'd say he's another one who might take a bit of a breather and uh, pop back whenever whoever Conte or uh, or whoever it is blows up at Real Madrid mid-season. Yeah, for such an indecisive character, I had to Google to see if he's still married because you would think he would have left the wife at this point, you know, but they've they've been together since 94, so he, he does commit to something. But uh, yeah, it, if, if you look at how he managed Madrid as well, I mean, very little interest in kind of you know, integrating Odegaard, Jovic, the younger guys, uh, Vinicius, Rodrigo. He always pretty much went back to his tried and tested guys who are now in their their mid thirties and, and run into the ground. So he was he, he had no interest in trying to kind of safeguard Madrid's future for the next five to ten years. And I think that's how he treats management. It is more of a hobby. Um, I'm not saying he's not competitive and doesn't take it seriously. He absolutely yeah. does, but. He kind of just lives in the moment first, and then as soon as he gets a bit tired for it, he walks away from it again. But you would think that sort of approach would probably suit a PSG more than Poch coming in and trying to run yeah. them into the ground. Uh, but that's really the only only possible destination I could see at this point. Um, but I think he'll probably just t- end up taking another couple of years off. And considering the way the football landscape keeps changing, you know, who knows? the Madrid opportunity might come up again or <laughs> somewhere else. Uh, I mean, he did manage their youth team as well for, for a few years and seemed to enjoy that. So, um, and obviously has strong links to Juventus. So it'd be interesting to see if he was to take on something there in, in some capacity. But um, I think he'll he'll enjoy his his uh, his summer back home and, and probably will take a break, I'd imagine. Quickly, uh, on the Irish front, lads, um, Stephen Kenny naming his squad for the upcoming friendlies against Andorra and Hungary. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I was, I was expecting maybe a little bit more, a little bit more um, experimentation, I suppose, with the squad. But mm. um, some new faces. Jamie McGrath, I suppose, the the most kind of exciting one. I suppose to look forward to after a pretty good season with Saint Mirren. Andrew Omo Daly as well from Norwich, um, straight in. And and if he um, plays either of the games, he'd be the first uh, Irish international to be born after the uh, the Spain game in two thousand two <laughs> to play oh, for Ireland. God. Oh, to, to to show all of our ages, um, Danny Mandrew in as well from from Shamrock Rovers, so it's good to see some some yep. League of Ireland representation mm. there. Um, Giudozio Benny from from Rotherham, um, I, I remember watching him for Limerick a couple of years back in the Markets Field, and he just looked a comp- complete cut above everyone else. Um, you know, in terms of his kind of athleticism and his and his kind of power to get forward, so um, very cool to see him in as well. Um. Other than that, it's fairly tried and tested. I suppose the more interesting stuff has been in, in the under-21s. Um, obviously, the good news that we spoke about last week, that Ryan Johansson um, has committed himself to the Republic. He's straight in um, for Jim Crawford's side. John Joe Patrick Finn as well, 
straight in as well, um, along with Connor Noss um, and a couple of more uh, exciting names from around the Championship uh, and even the Premier League. But no Michael Obafemi again. I think he's kind of been rumoured to, to be uh, on standby for, for the senior side, um, which would be a kind of a good confidence boost for him and, and for fans as well if he does get called up there. And no um, Mipo Odebeko as well from, from West Ham. So it looks like... Um, He's, well, according to reports anyway, he's still kind of undecided about whether he wants to, to play for the Republic or for Nigeria um, or even for England. I think he's he's eligible for England as well after uh, spending the last couple of years there as well. Yeah, I suppose we're, we're going to be in the middle of these kind of multi-country tug-of-wars uh, uh, increasingly going forward, I suppose, when the, the nature of our society haven't changed and we're seeing the kind of that first generation of uh, African Irish or um, African Irish English sort of um, of of players coming through. Mm. So I think we're probably going to have even more than kind of the the Grealish and Rice thing. I think it'll be that kind of balancing act. Like the Johansson one's a good example as well, where like they're they're, they're qualified for so many different places in this increasingly globalized world that we're probably going to have to try our hardest. And the FAI are going to have to work pretty earnestly to get people on board, and then. Like learn the mis- learn from the mistakes of the past and cap the fuckers nice and early, <laughs> like <laughs> just no messing around. Like and like I know Obafemi is capped, so that kind of takes care of that. But like players of that profile who are proving themselves at at higher and higher levels, I don't see any problem with capping them nice and early. Like it, like uh, we're, we're we're not striving for for much at the minute. We're not exactly at our at our highest ebb. Is that, I don't know if that a, a thing. I know you can be at a low ebb. Can you be at a high ebb? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, we're not in a great place. So I think if we spend you know the next campaign tying lads to us forcibly by capping them, I don't think it's the worst decision in the world. But um, yeah, I think we're gonna have to have patience as well. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd love I'd love me and the guys to to declare, but. You know, it's it's a complex thing trying to pick through, um, your kind of your sense of identity, um, especially when there's different you're you're being pulled in different directions. So, I just, I hope and I th- I think in fairness, it's a little different than the rice and grilla situations, which was which were quite quite raw, uh, especially the rice one, uh, and especially given that it was a very binary decision between us and England. Mm-hmm. But I do hope that there is an, an understanding from the wider public in that these decisions aren't easy. And it's not as straightforward as it is for people like the three of us who, as far as I know, only have one, only would have had one option to declare <laughs> for one country. I won't speak for you. I would have only had one option had I been good enough. And I think with Amman and Daly being born after the 2002 World Cup quarterfinal, I think, or last 16, I think I can finally give up hope of getting called up <laughs> if players of that age are getting called up. But um, I think for the gen- for general public, it's it's hard to understand the kind of complex issues around that. And I just hope people have patience with it. And there's going to be some that we lose out on. Um, but I, I suppose we just have to be open to the ones that we do um, that we do get and to be on top of as many as we can uh, from an FAI point of view. And in fairness, they haven't been t- bad at it. And you, those names that you mentioned in the 21 squad, they're casting the net wide. There was a fellow who played in the Libertadores there recently for Colombia, qualified yeah. uh, through his grandfather, I think. They're apparently contacting him. He's only 15. That's the sort of thing we need. We need a bit of an imagination because we're that's, not we're not producing. I think, Sorry, go on. I think I think that's already been uh, been put to bed. Um, oh shit! To, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Brilliant. I, I'm gonna 
tra- player tracker, not not Kenny's kids, but um, an equivalent. Uh, apparently, spoke to Holman McCormick was his name, but uh, apparently he, he he said that his grandfather wasn't born. Um, in Ireland, and it was actually born in Colombia. So never stop, yeah, Tony Cascarino. Exactly. Don't worry about it, Coleman. <laughs> yeah. Come on into the fold. Yeah, he was passing the he, name he, test, and he was a hundred percent way more yeah. than Cascarino. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah but no, it's a good point about um, you know there'll be a lot of big decisions for guys to make in the next few years. I mean, even in the case of Omo Bamadeli, um, luckily he's hell bent on representing Ireland, but actually both of his parents are Nigerian. So you know had that gone another way, he, he might've had a much stronger mm. connection to represent his parents' country. Yeah. Um, but thankfully, probably because of his success, obviously Phil in league slip, as you know, yourself, you know, wants, wants to keep the show on the road for Ireland. Uh, but yeah, we will have, uh, a lot of these situations come up in the next few years. And, and I think, uh, the FAI are fully aware of that now. And you see, the effort they're going to, especially at an under-21 level, to get these guys involved as early as possible for Ireland to kind of build up that, uh, you know, connection to representing Ireland. It won't always work. Um, And uh, Odebeko, I think we can write him off at this point because he's already a bit too conflicted as as to what he wants to do. So usually once that doubt creeps in, you you know, it very rarely works in our favour, especially somebody as, you know, insanely talented as he is i mean he could be a really top class player mm. so um it's it's a shame but you know as phil said we need to be patient um you know i'll happily call rice a turncoat all day long but the others <laughs> um you know these young guys coming through they're they're they have their reasons for not wanting to represent ireland um and no issue even if they have done under 15 under 17 you know as you get older your ambitions and and mind uh, changes so you know it just has to be respected but you know, as uninspiring as that senior squad looks at the moment, the under-21 squad looks about as strong as you could have hoped for from an Ireland side for a very, very long time. Um, even even the clubs that they're playing at at the moment, the level that they're playing at, the the players and managers that they're, they're learning from, hopefully at, you know, Gladbach, uh, Schalke, even though I know they didn't have a great season, but that's still good for Dan Rose there. Um, and things like that. That's not what we've really seen from Irish under-21 players before, having that level of, um, you know, integration in these top European clubs. So it'll be interesting to see how they go. Um, uh, and there's a few others as well who we, we still have high hopes for, Leo Connor in particular. Um had a very good season at Tranmere Rovers after his career seemed to stall at Celtic. So uh, there's a few like that as well who, who you know, he's in the senior squad now. So it'll be interesting to see see how he develops. Um, I know we could talk all day long about certain individuals, but um, I think we have a lot to work with. And, and that's mainly why Kenny did get the job. Um, so I think he'll have a better 18 to 24 months than he has had for Ireland in terms of um, the talent available to him. First, I thought you'd choose your bollocks to be dry. Excuse me, this is live. Delighted to be joined by Chelsea fan and LOI fan TV man Sean O'Connor and Main Road Ramble podcaster Jordan Deegan. Thanks for coming on, lads. Hope you're well. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us on. So I think if we had asked either of you maybe in, in November or December, would you have expected to be in the Champions League final come come May, I think we might have gotten very different answers. Um, Jur, I suppose, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, how, how does it feel going into, a, I suppose, a first Champions League final now for Man City, first final under Pep? It must kind of feel like 
a culmination of, of so much all towards this goal. It feels like everyone at the club has been kind of aiming for, you know, a Champions League final really since since the takeover back in, what was it, 2008 or now? Yeah, 2008, yeah. Um, to be honest, it's a bit weird. Um, you know, I suppose th- there's been a lot of talk, like I suppose among City fans, uh, like over the last, you know, since we got into the final, when we beat PSG, I suppose over, la- over the last month or so, about like, you know, the feelings and it- it's kind of, it- it's new, it's, you know, it's 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 well kind of documented that there's a lot of people involved in the club from a fan perspective, not necessarily within the club, who I think will always have a a passion and a kind of affiliation more so towards the Premier League, um, as opposed to a European trophy, um, but in particular the Champions League. And I think that kind of stems from the fact that we just maybe haven't been, you know, competing that long in the, in the competition. So, um. I think a lot of like a lot of the feeling even for myself, I'm kinda of like it's two or three days away now and you're kinda of going, Jesus, look, I can't believe we're here after, you know, I suppose whatever it is, ten or eleven seasons competing in it. Like it's great to be here. But I think for City fans, I think they're really up for it this year. And I think I think partly that's due to the fact I think they needed I think we needed the kind of the knocks of the previous couple of years. You know, going out to Liverpool, going out to Spurs, going out to Leon, Monaco. I think you almost need to get them kind of slaps in order to appreciate the competition for what it is. Because now it's a real feeling of, yeah, it is the one that the club want. It is the one that the players, the manager, and everybody involved behind the scenes really want. And as fans, I think we're getting there now. I think the feeling is we're really up for it this season. And I don't, I don't want to just say that just because it's, it's we're there at the final now. But I think it needed, it like City needed to do something special to kind of show people that Roy, we're in this now for serious. And I think. I think this will be the start of what I hope, whether we win, lose, or, or draw the weekend, I think this will be the start of them, you know, going deeper and deeper, as as I suppose people ex- have expected over the last couple of years. And Sean, I know Chelsea have been in the final a little bit more recently, but it's, it's nearly 10 years now, I think, since um, that win against Bayern Munich back in, in 2012. And I mean, to look back over the season, um, I suppose the decision to move on from Frank Lampard and, and get Thomas Tuchel in feels like such a, a pivotal moment, really, for Chelsea. Not only this season, but, you know, possibly even many seasons to come. Yeah, 100%. You could probably do a whole different podcast on the whole Frank Lampard uh, situation, like uh, <laughs> the pretty tired Christmas. And long story short, they made the decision to let him go and bring in Thomas Tuchel. Um, who, to be honest, I knew quite little about him before he came in. Um, I had a good, good friend of mine's a huge Dortmund fan. And he kind of filled me in on bits and pieces, but like it was such a quick start. From I think we were playing Wolves. His first game was uh, Wednesday night. I think he flew in like the night before. Um, so he really threw himself into it like straight away. Um, and since then, he's been absolutely flawless. Um, I think, uh, barring kind of one or two little bits. Um, but he went unbeaten in his first like 14 until uh, West Brom came to Sanford Bridge and tw- 12 clean sheets in that time. But I think <laughs> as well as that, um, he got your, the likes of Kai Havertz, Timo Werner, um, Christian Pulisic, who looked totally devoid of any confidence under Frank Lampard. He got them ticking again. Um the likes of Christensen, Rudiger, Azpilicueta to a certain extent, who under Frank, it looked like their time was finished at the club. They've returned to be pivotal players. Um, 
in our team. Um, and the squad we have, you always expected we'd at least kind of make third, third, fourth, or fifth. We we we'd be in the mix there. But we got a great win against Atletico in the last sixteen. But it was only for me really after the quarterfinal Porto, um, where you started to believe that geez, we we could actually do this. Like, um, he's we're so so solid at the back now, and kind of all the firepower up front um we're creating a lot of chances we're kind of struggling to convert a lot of them like we've had a lot of misses um like kind of easy easy misses this year we kind of lack a big number nine a kind of talisman uh in the box um but i suppose yeah it's, it's quite a different situation for ourselves compared to city where we had 2012 and before that i think we had four or five semi-finals in, in the space of a few years um but having said that, our last semi was uh, 2014. And um, as you said, it's nine years since we've reached the final. Um, so a lot of it has been pretty unexpected, but um, pretty welcome from, from a fan point of view. Joe, <laughs> sure, I suppose looking back on, on City's season, um, they wrapped up the title a couple of weeks ago and they've kind of, in terms of the European places, they had, a, I suppose, not not necessarily difficult, but they had two really interesting ties, um, Dortmund and then PSG. Um, how has the kind of been the run up been towards uh the final? I suppose considering as well that they've played Chelsea twice, um, in quick succession over the past couple of weeks, including losing the uh, the FA Cup final. Do you think that's gonna play on Pep's mind in any way? Uh, I don't I don't know personally. You know, going into going into a Champions League final, I think. It, it, I think, ironically, I think actually the game that kind of changed City's season around was when they went to Stamford Bridge, um, I think it was November, around that time, and that was kind of when, you know, we decided, well, I say we, Pep, I don't really have any decision-making at the club, but <laughs> when, when, when Pep decided to kind of, you know, Roy, we're going, like, we're, you know, we're going with the false nine, and we're committing to that, and that, you know, that was the game that kind of changed, and City obviously went on this, you know, it was 21, a 21-game winning streak, which... Like extraordinary stuff, which like especially during this year, you just don't expect. You then get into the, as I said, the latter stages of the um of the Champions League, the Dortmund toy. You're kind of thinking, right, if they want to go far, this is a game you're going to have to win. But obviously, the form of the likes of Erling Haaland, unfortunately, Jaden Sancho was, you know, he missed both legs through injury. But the likes of Jude Bellingham coming up and players like that, you know, it was always going to be a tough test. Um, I thought they obviously they handled it really well. Um, they won both toys. And the same, the same against Paris, which, well, the Dortmund game was good, and to get through that was maybe what you'd expect. I thought we'd be up against it against the Paris Saint Germain, and I thought the way they, especially the way they away from home, the way they kind of, they were really like City were really under the caution, kind of battered in that first half to put it lightly, and to go and win that game, that second half performance straight through into the second leg where they had complete control. Um, I think that's the real key in Europe is when you're, you know, going away from home, you need to, especially if you're a team like City, you want to dominate the ball, then you need to show a level of control and maybe not lose the heads, which has kind of cost them down the years, going away to, to Anfield, particularly um, away at Spurs and the kind of, the, they played at Spurs in the fourth, the first game, I think it was in the new White Hart Lane. So, you know, these sort of away toys, when you're going there, you, you may not win the game, but you have to make sure that you don't lose the head and maybe lose the game. So they've come on leaps and bounds that way. Um, I'm sure we've seen it every most games in the Premier League this season. They're 
they just they just seem to suck the life out of teams. And I think the, the, obviously Chelsea are going to be going into like into this game on the you know on a high after the results they've got off City. I just think City maybe didn't play what what I'd imagine would be the team that he'll play the weekend. Um, so. Listen, I think it's going to be an interesting game. I think what Chelsea done against City in the FA Cup semi-final was really, really good. Although City may not have played because I think they had the second leg of the PSG game coming up the, the Tuesday after that. Um, Chelsea made the pitch so, so small that day at Wembley. Um, and City just didn't have an answer. So listen, I don't think it's going to be straightforward or anything like it. I think it's going to be a really tough game. And you're just hoping that they can kind of, you know, force their way onto the game the way they have so many times this season. Jared, do you have any concerns that... <clears throat> Pep might overthink the final, um, as he's done with big kind of European games <laughs> in the last few years. Certainly, the Spurs semi-final or quarter-final rather is the one that sticks out the most, uh, and the lineup he went for in that away leg. Um, or do you think now he's got that out of his system completely, and you know has accepted that the false nine role is the is the way to go for him, him and to be successful this season? Yeah, to be honest, I just I don't think he can do anything mental at this stage. Um, he's obviously not afraid of you know making them decisions and potentially the criticism that comes with it. On the other hand, if if a, if he does do something like you know a tree at the back or you know something unusual to what we've been seeing and he wins it, then people you know it doesn't matter them. But mm. I, I can't see him changing from what he's done. I think the players who are going to play are pretty much what everybody's going to expect. Um, I don't see. I don't think anybody. Like, for example, Ferran Torres got a hat-trick against Newcastle two weeks ago. I don't think he's played himself into the final by any means. Um, I think that team is pretty much picking itself, with maybe the exception of who, whether he goes Zinchenko or Cancelo at left-back and Fernandinho or Rodri in midfield. Um, other than that, I think the team is picking itself in, in terms of the false nine. Um, uh, and if you wanted a single down in them two positions, I still think they're still quite obvious. I think he goes Zinchenko and I think Fernandinho's played himself into the final. So I actually don't think he'll do anything differently tactically or shape-wise. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if it is a game of cat and mouse on the day um, and Tuchel maybe, you know, forces his hand to do something or they kind of wait each other out to see who's going to be the first one to make a move and they're either or a reactionary off that. But going into the game, no, I don't think he'll... Um, I don't think we'll see, you know, the kind of pep weird stuff like Gundogan right wing at Anfield that sort of stuff I don't think we're gonna I don't think we're gonna see that again well Pep was pretty emotional now last time we saw him so you don't think he's going to succumb to his uh, emotions and, and start a guerra from the off maybe I don't think he will no <laughs> as much as like as much as I love he had if he had the legs to do it um I don't think he does anymore to be honest I just he's obviously going to be the after Sunday you're kind of going oh he has he still kind of got it, you know. But um, listen, it was obviously very emotional. Oh, Jesus, Pep had me folded like a deck chair after about five <laughs> seconds as well. To be honest, the minute I seen him, I was like, I, I done so well to kind of compose myself. But um, it's weird. Like Aguero is that one player, obviously like the David Silvers and the companies and all. But yeah. you know, the whole Aguero thing is that it's like I'm a fully grown adult and he's almost like a hero to me. It's like you know, kids when they look at like he is that to me because. You know, we didn't have it, so it was a great send off, and I still don't think Pep will pick him. Sean, what about Chelsea? Then Do you expect any kind of surprises uh, to be sprang from by Tuchel? Um, I suppose looking at their side, I mean, it, it's been fairly um, 
solid now since he took over and like you mentioned some of the improvements and I suppose I, I think of Antonio Rudiger as, as one who's kind of come on so much since uh, um, since Tuchel took the job but I suppose defensively as a whole and I know there's been kind of um, injury rumours around and Edward Mendy has made such a huge difference to the goalkeeping position but do you expect any kind of surprises there from, from Tuchel's selection? Um, yeah, there's one or two bits. Um, I think Mendy, it looks like he should be fit for the final. Um, I think he had a bruised rib, he hit an x-ray on, um, which thank God for that because I don't know what I'd do if I had to watch Kepa in a Champions League <laughs> final conflicts and emotions Carious there vibes. <laughs> you're, you're playing um, City if Kepa played in the final he's definitely pulling off like a, an all-time Buffon level game to win it 100% 100% <laughs> or it might turn into De Gea the other night now. <laughs> but um, yeah I suppose to be honest there's not too many surprises with Tuchel like he borrowing one or two he might bring uh He's had to play Kovacic instead of Kante a few games uh, through through the injury, um, but there's pretty much a nailed on starting eleven. Kind of I have here in front of me. Um, I suppose the big question before the match: Does he go with Timo Werner um, up front instead of Kai Havertz? Um, obviously, we all know the struggles Timo's had um, this season, but just from my point of view, like he's created, he creates so many chances. His movement is excellent and I think it's like eight or nine penos he's won for us this season alone um so do you give him do you give him a shot in the final or do you go with Kai Havertz who has been pretty impressive in the Champions League this year for us um obviously he has the height um over Timo as well um a funny thing Tuchel's done the last few games I think was the FA Cup final he played Reese James in the back three and Aspi uh, right wing back. Um, I think James has played there before, but he wanted to kind of keep Jamie Vardy quiet. And in the FA Cup final, it worked terrifically. Um, James James had a James had Vardy in his pocket. To be honest, um, it didn't work so well against Aston Villa last Sunday. Um, so that one's really hard to call. Like Aspie has that experience in the back three. Like he's. I, th- I think he's the only member of the squad we have that played our last semi-final in 2014. Um, but if you play James in, in the back three, you sacrifice like his his bombing up the wing. Um, his his crossing is excellent as well. Um, Aspie doesn't have the legs James has, obviously, because uh, kind of the wing backs running up the wings is such a crucial part of the whole Tuchel kind of 4-3-3. So like, kind of when you're attacking... And one of the double sixes drop in, you're kind of almost attacking with a front six. Um, but the pace of Chilwell and James, um, if they kind of catch us in the counter, and if Kante drops in, you kind of defend him with a, with a six as well. So the 4 3 3 has worked excellently for us this year. Um, but just look, I think uh, Kovacic is. is um, Jorginho will start over Kovacic I think Kovacic is just returning from injury uh, Christensen is just returning from injury too so I do think it'll be Rudiger, Silva and Aspi in the back three um, there's a question whether you start Christian Pulisic who is really hot and cold like um, he has such bright sparks and on his day like in the in the first leg semi-final against Real getting that early goal he was like dynamite he was so good but then other games like Villa last last um last Sunday, like 
you don't even notice he's there <laughs> to midway through the second half. You kind of think, geez, he's done nothing for the whole game. Uh, Mason Mount's a dead-on starter. Um, so I don't think there'll be too many surprises. Um, there's one or two 50-50 choices. There's arguments for both. Um, Zayak is, is, uh, Hakim Zayak is a great option off the bench to put on the right wing or the left wing. Um, Callum Hudson-Odoi can do a job off the bench as well. Um but, yeah, I don't expect too many surprises, to be honest. Just jumping back to, to one of the first guys you mentioned there, Timo Werner. Um, I mean, the perception of him has changed so much since Lampard left, I find, just from kind of reading, you know, comments on Twitter and reaction to his games. You know, he's, he under Lampard, I think everyone was just kind of mad to criticise him, and mm-hmm. just considering he was such a big signing, uh, a big money signing. Things weren't going well for him. Um, and he was just kind of an easy player to slay it. But since Tuchel's come in, um, and he's still, like <laughs> Werner, he's still missing chances, but his all-round work rate and his ethic and his creativity, as you said, and just kind of making a nuisance of himself has has been such a such a huge part of his game. And, and like I, I, to be honest, I, I'm surprised that you even kind of suggested that he, he mightn't be in the, in the reckoning to start. Yeah, like... He's one of the hardest workers. It's it, it's it's impossible not to like him or like not from a fan point of view to to respect the work he does. Like like eighty five ninety minutes, he's still pressing high press and like run himself into the ground. Um, he's an absolute workhorse. Where on the other hand, Kai Havertz, he he's not that. He kind of it looks like he strolls around the pitch. It, it it looks like at times he doesn't actually care, but he's. I think he's just a little bit more easy going. Um, um, he's a bit more silkier, a bit less of a workhorse than Timo. Um, but as you said, exactly, Timo's he's been making a nuisance of himself all season. And yeah, it it'll be funny. There's YouTube compilations. There's loads of them, like of his misses. Um, but I I've watched every minute of him this year, and I've no doubt he'll start hitting the net next year. Like he offers so much to the team. Um. Even with the misses, I think he offers way more than like if you didn't have him in the team. Um, Havertz is another one that's been kind of hot or cold, um, but I'd probably go with Timo ahead of Kai in the final. Um, the problem was under Lampard, he didn't really know where to play him, to be honest. So he had him all across the front three. I think he had him at a left wing in the midfield three at one stage as well um where obviously that german element from tuchel coming in and, and havertz as well um whatever he's done on the training pitch has just worked wonders and both of them players have improved leaps and bounds since tuchel came in do you think signing havertz was, was a wise move looking back when you think you know how mason mount has developed as a number 10 ziash can play there as well Werner was always going to be the first choice number nine after coming in and then they have Giroud as the backup and how Chelsea and Lampard in particular have struggled to integrate him into the side. Um, his best performances for Leverkusen probably came as a false nine in the second half of last season, for example. And he, he was rarely going to get the opportunity to play that role. Was it kind of somebody upstairs making the decisions in terms of bringing him in and, and being sought after? Or, or was there a plan to integrate him in, in the role he has now? It's hard to say. We, yeah, I think it was last summer. Um he we had a lot of we had a lot of cash in the bank um from uh, off the back of the two uh tra- transfer bans the two windows we couldn't make signings in um so if it was an opportunity that was too good to turn down at the time um 
that's an option if they signed him from the point of view is they didn't kind of want anyone else to kind of get him. That's another option. Um, it's kind of hard to say, um, to be honest. Uh, I, th- I think he has, he, when he started under Tuchel in the nine, he's been excellent. Uh, some games do tend to pass him by, um, but it's a kind of a cliche, but a lot of people say like, uh, oh, what other options you have? Like, it's a good problem to have. But I think, to be honest, with Lampard, like it, we were very, very top heavy, kind of still are. Um, and he had too many options. He had too many pieces of the puzzle he was trying to fit together. He was trying to keep everyone happy. Um, and he might have had people from upstairs saying to him, like, we've spent X amount on this player. Like, you need to play him. Um, um you can't be starting like Olivier Giroud or kind of Tammy Abraham ahead of him. Um, that's probably my, on a side note, that's probably one of my only gripes with Tuchel at the moment. I don't think he's given uh, Tammy Abraham a fair chance at all yet. Um, it's impossible to know the reason. Like he's clearly seen something he doesn't like in training. Um, maybe his work ethic. Um, he's got, I think less than five kind of substitute appearances um, since since February. Um, I think before a week or two ago, he was our top league scorer. Um, he didn't even make the squad for the for the FA Cup semi final um, and final. So that's probably my only gripe with Tuchel. Um, it looks like he'll leave in the summer now. Um, but a lot of people are saying we need to bring in a and me included and a number a number nine or talisman or your 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 drug was or your costas like our our top scorer in the league this year was Jorginho with seven penalties like so and, and we still came fourth so <laughs> I, I I'd like to wonder how how high we'd finish if we actually had a fella in around the six yard box um 18 yard box to put all them chances away um and then if we do bring in like this talk of Hallands there'll always be talk of Kane players like these, where do you put Kai Havertz or Timo if if one of them come in? Um, do you think it'd be a busy transfer window at Chelsea? Yeah, Leds, I suppose it's kind of interesting to see that the Champions League final could kind of hinge on, on two homegrown prospects. Um, in the case of Mason Mount for Chelsea, but Jared, it, it's certainly felt that this season in particular has kind of felt like the coming of age for Phil Foden. Um, you know, he's been so involved uh, in the starting eleven, and he's kind of impact in terms of goals and assists, but just his all-round play. I mean, he's such a lovely player to watch. It must it must be fantastic to see uh, him finally kind of, you know, catching fire and kind of making his own name in the team, considering, I suppose, he's been, he's been kind of, you know, shown in glimpses now and then over the past couple of years, but this year really feels like uh, he's kind of introduced himself. Yeah, it's to be honest, it's been, you know, unbelievable to kind of, watch him grow, I suppose, over the last couple of years. Um, you know, there's been many, many shouts from City fans, media, you know, plenty of people in the in the public eye who've kind of questioned how Pep dealt with him um, up, up, up until this season. And it just shows the manager has got it absolutely spot on. Um, people are wondering, I suppose, you know, the, the talent was obviously there. How come he wasn't kind of getting in um, more often? But listen, I think he's handled them absolutely excellently. And the way he's kind of been this season has been, it's actually been unbelievable to watch. Um, he, like he's, he's still only 20 years old. It's its kind of scary. Um, You know, it's great to see like a local lad from Stockport who, 
you know, only a couple of years ago was pictured in a photograph behind the goal as a ball boy. And now he's, you know, playing in the Champions League final for the club he follows. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's it's obviously, you know, the teams down the years of the Uniteds with, you know, the homegrown players that they could kind of see that come to fruition within their club is, is brilliant to see. And as you mentioned, he's, he's just he's just a joy to watch. He's, you know, he's got the blistering pace. He can kind of jink in and out of players. He's He obviously has the work rate to, you know, compete with anybody in the team so um when he's in full flow it, it, it's a joy to watch and you know England certainly have a pool of them coming up with you know Foden Grealish I don't know whether we can say the Grealish one but you know <laughs> Foden Grealish and um and Mason Mount all, I suppose James Madison doesn't even get into the squad as well so they kind of have mm. a pool of them but it seems that Foden's kind of going to step above this season and looks maybe to be the the pick of the bunch at the moment anyway so listen I'm buzzing for him and I'm, I'm buzzing to watch him play in the Champions League final Jared, do you think he was slightly fortunate, Pep, that Foden didn't kind of do, you know, 12, 18 months ago what Sancho did and say, you know, you're still signing midfielders. I'm not really getting the minutes I should be. I'm only getting cameos. I could move to Spain, Germany, and be starting every week. Or was he always comfortable with sort of the plan City had for him, which is basically just to to ride it out, learn from the players who are there, learn from the manager, and now obviously have the success he's had? Yeah, to be honest, I don't. I think it's more the, the latter. I don't think, um, especially the fact he follows us like City. You know, I, I just don't think it was ever ever an option for him to kind of say, "Right, I'm going to you know cash in and go and play in Spain or or Germany or or for another you know whether it be down the leagues or whatever. I just don't think there was ever a ever even an option for the for Phil. I think. Uh, what good is it? I, I don't think to Phil Foden to go down and play in League One when he's training every day with. Players like Kevin De Bruyne, you know, Gundogan, David Silva at the time was there. Like, you're gonna get, you, you can obviously see learning off them has kind of developed them way quicker, maybe, and, and to be even beyond the level that people maybe taught over the last two or three seasons. So, I think he always had faith that the manager would get it right and people would respect that. And you know, we're kind of seeing it this year. So, Sean, I suppose you kind of echo a lot of the same statements about Mount. Um, I suppose. I was I was a little bit unsure of him at the start, especially kind of during the Lampard era. I didn't, I wasn't sure, you know, was he kind of, you know, just one of Lampard's guys. But he's certainly kind of broken off the shackles now under under Tuchel, and he's turning really turning into a, a top player. Yeah, definitely. Like, um, I think a lot of a lot of people overreacted when I don't think he started the first two one or two games under Tuchel, and that was just because Tuchel was trying to get a. A fair overview of everyone in the squad. Um, but yeah, I think la- like Lampard last season. I think he started all but like three games that whole season, and he's pretty much a mainstay. Um, under Tuchel, like he's picked up countless man of the match awards. Um, popped up with huge goals. Um, won against uh, Porto in the first leg. Um, in the first half when kind of they were putting a lot of pressure on us, and then he got the got the insurance goal laid on in the second leg in the semi um they kind of put the game to bed so he he's been absolutely super this year like kind of like Timo like he he never stops running um he's so intelligent on the ball like skillful can beat a man really easily um but his reading of the game is what I really really like um he can he can find a pass um and yeah, his all-round play, like he just offers so much, so much to the team, um, and 
kind of good reason he picked up Chelsea Player of the Year this year. Um, so to see him kind of saw it like I never got the, I never got all the Mason Mount uh, teacher's pet kind of stuff under under Lampard, but um, <laughs> now under under Tuchel he's he's shown that he's a mature top top level footballer. Um, and hopefully, like the like, same as Phil Foden, to win a Champions League at twenty one, twenty two would be absolutely insane. Plus, finally, lads, um, and this goes out to both of you. I mean, who say if either Man City or Chelsea were to win um, on Saturday night, like who would be the player that you'd point to and think, you know what, if this guy, if this guy gives us a, a nine or ten out of ten, you know, we're going to win the game. Who, who, who's, who's the player you're going to be looking at? <laughs> Listen, if Kevin De Bruyne shows up and um, puts in the performance, I think we know he can. It's going to be very, very hard to argue against. You know him not being the best player on the pitch. Um, we've seen him kind of against Everton the weekend. I don't know whether he just caught the game, but geez, he played five or six passes that you know the some players in the league would be happy with in their career playing one or two of them. And um, they were they were that sort of good. So I think. If he steps up and performs, um, City have a great chance. But also, I think Ruben Diaz has been so good this season. Um, we're going to need him again, potentially, um, to look after Werner and the likes of uh, that Chelsea have. So, if there's one player to pick from the City side, it has to be Kevin De Bruyne. But I'd be expecting Diaz to kind of Diaz and Stones to be looking looking out for us at the back as well going going into it. Yeah, um, for me, it'd probably be Golo Kante, um, mm. where he's kind of struggled a lot with injury a few moments um, this season last season but when N'Golo Kante is in top form you get a 8 out of 10 9 out of 10 performance every single game from um, like it's kind of a cliche he covers every blade of grass on the pitch um, but he doesn't he, he he reads the game so well that he he doesn't need to run all over the pitch he sees a ball coming and he's just there within a flash like um, he's Probably him and Mount are probably the two most important players under Tuchel. Um, the Kante's reading of the game is unbelievable. Um, the, the amount of tackles I've seen him make this season is insane. Um, and he just he he brings so so much to the team. Where kind of if Kante plays well, the team plays well. That's how important he is. Um, it looks like he'll be fit for the final. Um, he was rested last last Sunday, but I think. I think we will not win the Champions League if Kante's not in top form. Finally, lads, I suppose I have to get predictions off for you. Um, and I know the the pubs reopening have come a, a little bit too late for for uh, for this final. But uh, what's your plan for for Saturday night, Jar? Yeah, I think forget the pubs. The vaccination came a little too late for me. Otherwise, I'd have been straight on that plane to Porto. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, like. Predictions are the worst, man. Jesus, I hate doing this. Um, listen, I think it's going to be a tight game, but I'll look, look, I can't come on here and say Chelsea are going to win. I'm going to go two one City. <laughs> Sean, yeah, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be watching it here in the house. I was, I was, hopefully, ten percent of me was looking at uh, Sky Scanner last week and flight support. I want to come on. <laughs> if I do it, like, will I, will I do it? Um, and I would have had to get like six COVID tests, and it was a massive pain in in the arse. Uh, not not to mention the expenses. But um, next time, next time. But uh, yeah, I'll be watching it here in the house. Um, if I had to make a score prediction, um, 
there's so little between the sides. I can mm. de- I could definitely see it going to extra time, maybe penalties. Um, our last our, our only two finals, two thousand eight and twenty twelve, did both go to penalties. Um, so could we see the, see the same happening here? I'm not sure. Um, I'd probably go one one and Chelsea to win it two one in extra time. Um, yeah. <laughs> He's brave. That's brave stuff. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I actually wouldn't be surprised to see extra time either. But I think City, especially with their bench as well, will probably have too much in the end. So I'll go City in extra time. Great stuff. Thanks a million, Sean. Joe, for joining us this evening. Enjoy Thanks, Saturday guys. night. Cheers. Absolutely no problem, Kevin. Thanks a million for having us on. So we leave it there, so okey doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>